Bonjour, hello and welcome to Close Up on Canada, the podcast from the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. I'm your host, Daniel Bélan. This season, we are talking about immigration policy in Canada and beyond. Immigration has always been a key aspect of Canadian economic and social life, and thinking about immigration policy in a changing world is a priority. Our guests this season are experts in the field and will be giving us insight into the conversations happening now when it comes to immigration policy in Canada and abroad. In addition to this podcast, the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada will be hosting a two-day conference focused on immigration policy in Canada this fall on October 27 and 28 at the Sofitel Hotel in Montreal. The conference will feature keynotes and roundtables that address broad themes in immigration policy relevant to inform citizens, community leaders, journalists, policymakers, researchers, and students. For more information and to register for this event, please visit mcgill.ca slash misc slash 2022 conference. Today, we are starting off our season with a historical perspective on federal immigration policy here in Canada. We are pleased to be joined today by Jennifer Elric. Jennifer is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at McGill University. Her research explores migration governance, diversity, and social stratification. Her new book, Making Middle-Class Multiculturalism, Immigration Bureaucrats and Policymaking in Postwar Canada, shows our bureaucrats' perceptions and judgments about the admissibility of individuals in socioeconomic, racial, and moral terms influence the creation of formal admissions criteria for skilled workers and family immigrants that continue to shape immigration to Canada. Hi, Jennifer, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. So to start off, uh, could you tell us a bit about how you got into this field of research uh, about uh, immigration policy? Honestly, personal experience with my object of study. I think this happens to a lot of researchers at the outset. Uh, I spent a number of years in Germany uh, navigating immigration bureaucracies, applying for different residency permits, first as an intern, then as a post-secondary student, then as a freelancer, then as an employee. Uh, and there, things are these things are done face-to-face -face in local offices. And I became fascinated by the experience of being evaluated in these exchanges as an applicant for these different statuses and how my experiences in these offices compared to those had by other non-German citizens I was working and studying with. This eventually became one of my big research questions. How do state actors decide who meets the criteria for entry and residency? Uh, and there's a lot of interesting discretion in play in those moments. Very good. So the starting point was really this experience of being a foreigner in Germany and, and navigating uh, the system. Uh, but then you decided to work on immigration policy in Canada uh, from a, an historical standpoint. So tell us a bit about um, what you uh, what you work on for uh, your PhD dissertation and, and then your your uh, your recent book in terms of uh, studying the historical context of immigration policy uh, in Canada. Uh, how has immigration policy 
uh, in our country changed since the Second World War? Well, um, so as, as with most uh, researchers starting out, um, it was initially a bit of a messy process, bringing together this fascination from personal experience into dialogue with, with some uh, ongoing academic discourses. And when I started my dissertation, I came back from Germany to Canada to the University of Toronto, and I, I met scholars who were working on this historical era, for example, Phil Triadophilopoulos at the University of Toronto, and during my dissertation, a very big, important book on um, major historical policy changes in the post-war era came out, Culling the Masses, by David Fitzgerald and David Cook Martin. And I was, I was reading these sources, and um, it came to me, what, what, is, what, if any, role was played by these, these individual bureaucrats inside the state you know, that I had experienced you know, personally face-to-face -face, uh, in Germany? And initially, I started off trying to do a historical comparison of the inner workings of these immigration bureaucracies in this post-war era, and uh, later had to drop the German case, unfortunately, just because of the accessibility of comparable material. Uh, Germany has a very decentralized immigration system, um, as I've already mentioned, a lot happening in local offices. And digging down into the inner workings of the bureaucracy is just much more complicated in that context and was ultimately too much for a PhD dissertation. To your second question, what, what happened at that time and how did our policy change? After World War II, Canada introduced a completely new immigration policy for selecting workers and family members for permanent residence. In other words, people who can stay permanently, work uh, in whatever job they choose, build their lives, uh, et cetera, with, with rights almost akin to citizenship short of, of voting. So the biggest formal elements of this new policy were put in place in a series of regulatory changes in 1962 and 1967. The last change introduced Canada's famous point system for selecting uh, skilled workers. And before these changes happened, uh, Canada had had a selection policy that focused on selecting on national origins. In other words, national origin groups were considered admissible or inadmissible based on the perceived compatibility of these groups with you know, white, the white settler mainstream. So in other words, admissible groups were people from the United Kingdom, France, Western, Northern Europe, you know, the original you know, white settlers uh, on the territory, and inadmissible groups were people from most other countries, um, especially Asian ones foremost. Uh, China were considered rather incompatible with this nation-building project. And after the regulatory changes I just mentioned in the 1960s, Canada replaced this selection on national origins with a so-called universal immigration policy. In other words, it started selecting individuals, um, not groups, based on traits like human capital in the case of workers and social ties in the case of, of family. And these, this policy, Canada's policy, it's, it also exists elsewhere, is called universal, uh, also sometimes non-discriminatory because formally anyone can apply um, to be admitted as an immigrant uh, worker or family member and be subjected to the same evaluation criteria regardless of their nationality, race, ethnicity gender or uh, other um, social descriptors. Canada was not the only country to make this change in the post-war era. The United States uh, made some adjustments, as did Australia a little later on. But Canada's was really among the first and most far-reaching of this type of policy and you know, has long been considered uh, a model of best practice by the OECD um, and other governments in the global north. 
So that was a major shift that that, that direct consequences on who we uh, we admit and the, the the countries of origin of of the the, the people who uh, who come to Canada uh, every year. So more concretely, what what would you say the the effects of these policy changes on immigration in Canada have been uh, in terms of how they they have. Uh, in a way, transform Canadian society over time since the the, the late 1960s. Well, as you've just mentioned, you know, one of the major effects uh, has been that it uh, created a multicultural society in Canada, uh, demographically speaking. So after these changes were introduced in the late 1960s, um, became solidified in the Immigration Act in the mid 60s. You know, already in the early 1970s, we were seeing a major shift in the origins of permanent residents coming to Canada. Uh, prior to these legislative changes and regulatory changes, um, we had had mainly European origin immigrants from the kinds of, of regions I've already mentioned. And after these uh, legislative and regulatory changes, uh, we started receiving immigrants uh, from the rest of the world. And that continues up to this day. Um, if you look at more recent statistics, uh, you'll see that the top origin countries for immigrants to Canada continue to be uh, India, China, uh, the Philippines, Nigeria, Pakistan, uh, Syria, Eritrea, Iran. Uh, this was in 2019, according to a parliamentary report. Um, so demographically, we've become much more uh, multicultural. And that's, that's, that's one of the big important effects. Um, the second effect that I'd like to talk about is how you know, while we've become more multicultural, um, we've also really stratified our immigration stream um, in terms of social class. Um, and this is an argument I put forward uh, in my new book, Making Middle Class uh, Multiculturalism, that uh, yes, access to permanent residence for skilled workers and family members has been made you know, racially and ethnically diverse, but it's accessible only to racially and ethnic ethnically diverse individuals who are essentially middle class. So what do I mean by middle class? Uh, I think I should probably say a few words about that. I mean two things here. First, I mean what sociologists uh, tend to call socioeconomic status. Um, in other words, people's uh, education, occupation, income at, at a certain level that makes them uh, considered uh, middle class, you know, good income, white collar occupations, uh, tertiary education. But beyond that, you know, being middle class refers to having certain cultural and moral traits. And a number of these have been identified by sociologists. Uh, they include things like ambition and dependability and self-reliance, discipline, uh, perseverance, uh, long-term planning, community-mindedness. And these are all uh, slightly less tangible elements of, of being considered uh, middle class. And what I argue in my book is that, you know, the selection criteria that were introduced in the 1960s, especially the point system for selecting skilled workers, which was also applied to extended family members at the time, was not just about, you know, the socioeconomic status component, about how useful people might be to the Canadian economy, um, but also who they were as people um, and how they could shape um, the socioeconomic status of the Canadian nation moving forward. And I show in the book how these cultural and moral assessments related to middle classness were built into elements of the selection grid uh, for this point system under what was then called the personal assessment. Um, and how this, how these selection criteria were developed through the application of, of, of admissions procedures to concrete um, immigrations. So what does the, you know, why should we can be concerned about this effect? You know, yes, we're racially and ethnically diverse, that's good. 
but really, um, you know, we are aiming to bring in ethnically and racially diverse people who are also, uh, you know, middle class. Well, one of the reasons we should be concerned about this um, is that, you know, people who do not meet these middle class uh, expectations, they have access to much less advantageous legal statuses entering the country. Um, a lot of people do enter the country, but they don't do so on the same terms that we reserve for these more privileged um, people. They end up in temporary statuses, uh, often tied to the whims of uh, private individuals like employers. And this really makes a difference. This makes their lives in Canada precarious. Um, it makes them unable to, to plan um, a future to execute those plans. Um, you know, a lot of you know, social mobility can be, can be put on ice. And uh, you know, since the mid 2000s, uh, at least the number of temporary foreign workers and people entering on temporary statuses or acquiring permanent resident status after a stint of being a temporary uh, worker or student, uh, this is sometimes called two-step uh, immigration, um, has grown substantially uh, through programs. And, and it's not just grown substantially, it's also, you know, in some cases, become highly racialized in programs like the Seasonal Agricultural Worker Program, which brings in uh, mainly Mexican uh, workers on a temporary basis. For a long time, the live-in caregiver program, which is no longer operating as it used to, which brought in majority Filipina um, uh, workers. So, um, you know, I think, you know, in terms of equity and justice, we really have to ask ourselves, you know, what does it mean that we reserve secure legal status, the ability to achieve social mobility and plan one's life and one's family uh, life, uh, that we reserve this for the most privileged of people around the world? Another uh, thing that is concerning um, about this middle classness uh, and reserving uh, secure legal status for these middle class individuals is that it means um, that everyone else has a lot of difficulty sponsoring immigrant family members. Um, in other words, the right to have a family, um, especially an extended family, if members of these family, uh, the, this family are immigrants, is, has become over time more of a privilege than a right. And I think we need to ask ourselves what that means for our society. Yes, these are important uh, normative and, and political uh, questions. So looking forward, I know social scientists are not necessarily good uh, at predicting the future, but uh, in terms of the, the, the challenges, the, the current challenges that we are facing in terms of immigration policy, what do you think are, are the most important challenges? In, in a way, you just mentioned one with the uh, uh, social class and, and access to a um, a secure legal status, but uh, but what are the other challenges that that we are facing in terms of uh, our immigration policy moving forward? Uh, you're right. Social scientists are terrible at predicting the future, but one of the benefits of working historically is that so often the past um, tends to repeat itself, and so uh, we can gain a little bit of foresight by by looking backwards. Uh, and this is the case in immigration policy to some extent as well. As you've just mentioned, I think one of the main challenges moving forward is this balance between temporary admissions and two-step admissions versus immediate access to permanent residence, which used to be the baseline uh, admissions procedure for us. Most people who entered as, as immigrants had a permanent status. And I'm not the only one to have shown and argued that we are moving away from this model. And uh, one of the big questions that arises there, and uh, Catherine Dovan has, has raised this question in a recent book as well, is uh, whether or not we are abandoning immigration as, an, as a nation-building tool. 
Um, are we just looking now for workers for the here and now and not using immigration to build a society? Um, and if so, uh, what consequences will that have for us when we have large numbers of non-citizens in the country who are destined to remain non-citizens? Um, I think that can carry some substantial political and social issues with it. I mean, looking to the past, uh, because this is in the news uh, again, it's a problem. It's a perennial problem with the Canadian federal system are backlogs, backlogs of you know, ranging at times from tens of thousands up to now, I think, in the millions of, of applications on ICE, uh, people's lives on hold, uh, pending outcome of these decisions. And this is something that the federal bureaucracy has always struggled with. This is, this is not new. But I think one of the future challenges related to solving the backlog issue will be the rise in automation, in the adjudication of admissions. This is already happening with the use of AI, um, artificial intelligence to evaluate um, and select people at different stages of the, the visa issuing program. And uh, sure, uh, that is one potentially one efficient way to, to deal with a, with a problem, but it brings with it other challenges, which you know, so uh, social science knows that we all op operate with some level of uh, explicit or implicit bias, especially racial biases, gendered biases. And uh, people program computers and algorithms. Um, and so uh, while we may potentially solve one problem uh, with the automation through AI, the question is already what kind of other problems are we building into that uh, system? I'll, I'll just mention a third issue moving forward. I think there are any number we could talk about, but probably one of the bigger ones that we're facing uh, will be um, how uh, our current climate emergency affects the demand for immigration to Canada and how this will put additional pressure on our existing system and our attempts to solve those pressures. Um, social scientists are really starting to have an eye on this. You know, we talk about it in terms of environmental migration or the rise of climate change migrants, they're sometimes referred to. Uh, we, we know that our climate is changing. Um, this, you know, global North countries are disproportionately the source of the emissions driving this, this climate change, uh, global south countries are disproportionately going to be affected by it in the near term with the loss of, of livable land, uh, fewer resources like food. So I think that to the extent that these climate change processes uh, increase demand for immigration to Canada, the question will become, how will Canada and other countries in the global north react to this demand? How will we judge applications from these groups uh, against the applications uh, from other groups, to what extent are we going to uh, step up and see a, a moral commitment to aiding in resolving the crises caused by our own actions? Um, to what extent will we perhaps uh, attempt to uh, throw up barriers uh, to that movement? So that, I think, is a, a very big open question that we will have to wrestle with in the future. Yes, major challenges moving forward and, and climate change certainly is front of mind uh, in immigration policy and, and well uh, beyond. So thank you very much for this fascinating uh, conversation, Jennifer. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That was Jennifer Elric, Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology at McGill University. Jennifer will also be a speaker at our upcoming conference on immigration policy happening on October 27 and 28 in Montreal at the Sofitel Hotel. For more information and to register for the event, please visit mcgill.ca slash misc slash 2022 conference. 
To learn more about the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, our academic programs, and our public events, please visit us at mcgill.ca misc. Follow us on Twitter at MISCAN, M-I-S-C-C-A-N. And of course, subscribe for more episodes of Close Up on Canada. Thank you to our producer, Blair Elliott, and to the other uh, staff members here at MISC. And thank you for listening. Take care. À la prochaine.